This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. It can be difficult to know how to care for young boys' foreskins and to teach boys' foreskin care. Sometimes misinformation and poor habits are passed down through generations and some of these can harm more than they help. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with two authors of a very practical article published in CMAJ called Five Things to Know About Foreskin Care in Childhood. Joining me today are Dr. Ryan McClarty, a fourth-year urology resident, and Dr. Darcy Kidu, a pediatric urologist. They are both based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and are joining me from there. Welcome, Ryan and Darcy. Thank you very much for, uh, for having us here today. So, Ryan, can you tell us a bit about who you are? Oh, absolutely. As you mentioned, I'm a current fourth-year resident in my chief here at the uh, University of Alberta in the Department of Urology. Darcy, how about you? I'm uh, Darcy Kadu. I'm a pediatric urologist at the Hospital and the Scholarly Children's Hospital. I had, did my urology residency there at the University of Alberta and did my pediatric urology fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia many years ago, sadly. Um, and so now I have a, currently have an academic practice at the University of Alberta Hospital. Ryan, let's start with the basics. What is the foreskin? The foreskin or prepuce, but we'll use the, uh, the term foreskin as, as it's commonly used throughout the rest of our, our conversation. Um, it's simply the tissue that covers the glands or uh, what's commonly referred to as the head of the penis. And the, it's really two layers, the outer layer that's continuous with the penile shaft skin and an inner layer that's a, actually a mucous membrane. And in this article, um, we're going to refer to what we call anatomically normal foreskins. Um, so actually something very common that we need to rule out when a newborn uh, baby male is born, um, that the foreskin is intact circumferentially and that there is no bottom or ventral deficiency that could be suggestive of a, of a hypospadias, which is something that would require a pediatric urology consultation. So during the first few years of a boy's life, what should physicians recommend to parents with regards to routine foreskin care? What I always recommend parents is really a practical approach. Um, so generally I say it's like any other body part and you do need to clean it, but you need to clean it with care. So I usually suggest that with every diaper change, they just gently retract to make sure that the urine is not sitting in the foreskin. Um, and usually in a baby, it won't be able to retract. So it, it will go very, very slowly. And I always say to not forcibly retract it. But typically, I do want them to use diaper wipes and, and clean it and just make sure that the urine is not trapping. As the child gets older and they go on to toilet training, it's very important um, to make sure that when they learn to toilet train, that they gently retract again to make sure that the urine isn't trapping and wipe with the toilet paper. Um, what I often find in my office is that parents 
um, are shy about talking about this with their kids, that they toilet train. And as I examine them and, and retract the foreskin, whether it comes back or not, urine starts to pool out. Uh, and that's where they run into the biggest problem. So really, it's very, very moderate care. It's gentle retraction. You don't want to tear it or um, try and put anything in. Some parents try and, and put Q-tips in and clean it really aggressively. Um, and we really just want some just very mild retraction and cleaning during the first few years of life. You also don't want to ignore it. Um, some parents are told to not touch it and make sure you stay away from it, otherwise you'll cause problems, um, and that can be an issue as well. Darcy, what are some of the common myths about foreskin care that you encounter when you're in your clinic? Yes, so there's many of them, um, and they come from all, so all different sources. So it's other parents, it's um, the nurses, it's the physicians, um, and really it's the extremes, and it's um, some parents are told, as I said, not to do anything with it, um, and then you end up having problems with infections and cleanliness. And then others are told to to forcibly retract it and clean inside and that it's got to come back, and, and if the foreskin doesn't come back, they're going to run into problems. Um, and a lot of it uh, can really be prevented with, with just discussing it with the family. Um, many parents think that because their uncle had a circumcision, it's a genetic problem, when in reality, it's it's often just a, a neglect in the care. Um, the other big problem is is just that when you discuss genitalia, for some reason, um, it becomes this very shy topic, and people don't want to discuss it. Um, and then, as the kids get a little older, then the parents worry about discussing this with their son. And I think it's important to make sure that we normalize genitalia and talk about it and take care of it, and really to not. Um, not sort of focus on the extremes and discuss just routine care. So I got from what you were saying that some parents think that the non-retractable foreskin in infancy is actually abnormal, whereas you say it's normal. That's absolutely true. And it's, and it's not just parents, it's physicians. So I will often get referrals um, to my office saying, that the child has phimosis and needs circumcision and their par the parents arrive with their bags packed ready for surgery. Um, and so the vast majority of time, for many, many years, the foreskin does not come back and that is normal. Um, we do often call, call it physiologic phimosis, but that's very different from what we'd call pathologic phimosis or a phimosis that actually needs any intervention. So it is normal for foreskin to, to be over the, the head of the penis, um, and it's important to reassure them that that's normal and it can take many years to change. So you mentioned phimosis. What is phimosis and how common is it? So physiologic phimosis is essentially a normal foreskin, and I think that's where people run into problems is that we've labeled it something that sounds like a medical condition when really it's just normal. So it's normal for the foreskin to not retract. Um, and so essentially, if you look at a newborn baby, um, assuming they're, they're formed normally, essentially close to 100% will have physiologic phimosis that can last for a few years and even into the older years. And that's different from what we would call pathologic phimosis, which is a true abnormality with scarring um, and abnormal skin. So just to reiterate, what should be done about physiologic normal phimosis? So physiologic or normal phimosis, the best treatment is watchful waiting, essentially just giving time for the natural history of the phimosis to resolve. And it resolves slowly over time as the child gets repeated reflex erections. And as you get a collection of uh, 
smeg uh, which is essentially that white exudator skin cells that collect uh, under the glands that help release these adhesions. We do know through studies that the rates decrease over time. About a little less than 10% of, of boys around the age of puberty will still have a physiologic uh, phimosis. Uh, a lot of, a lot's discussed about, um, you know, when should you be worried about physiologic phimosis? Um, if the child develops urinary tract infections, if the child develops skin infections that we commonly refer to as balanopostitis, uh, significant redness or erythema that can even incorporate the foreskin all the way down to the base. And sometimes you get purulent exudate coming from uh, outside the distal tip. Um, that might be a reason to, to seek treatment. Uh, another important thing that both parents and practitioners should be aware of is uh, a complication called paraphimosis. Sometimes you see that as the foreskin becomes retractile or sometimes even with forced retraction, the foreskin becomes pushed above or stuck behind the gland's penis and that becomes a medical emergency if it can't be uh, brought back to its normal position unretracted. Are there any other abnormalities that physicians or parents should be looking out for with regards to the foreskin? Uh, yes, there are some, especially if, if parents are interested in, in circumcision, there are some anatomic uh, variants that should not undergo a circumcision, perhaps without seeing a, a pediatric urologist. Such conditions such as uh, a hypospadias or the opening of the urethra is, is displaced. And usually you have a defect in the foreskin at that area. That's only important because that may uh, change management. And uh, if they want that repaired, sometimes you don't want to have a previous surgery ahead of, ahead of time. Some children are born with uh, a buried penis or sometimes the foreskin is webbed to the scrotum. These variants of normal um, in order to perhaps undergo reconstruction, we shouldn't have a, a routine circumcision ahead of time as that may change the options down the road. If I can also just comment on um, some parents comment on how their child was born with a natural circumcision, which is a term that I think both physicians and parents have developed and it's not a, not a medically recognized term. Um, but along the lines of what Ryan was saying, some children are born with variants of um, opening of the foreskin and that's also something that they can, can seek advice for. Um, because it can be a, a variant on the way to hypospadias so that the skin is different um, above from below and they want to make sure that they wouldn't undergo a routine circumcision if it might result in problems. So essentially, if the, if the foreskin is open at birth, then it's reasonable to ask if there's anything else going on. So just to clarify, hypospadias, uh, I understand this to mean that the opening of the urethra is somewhere along the underside of the shaft of the penis. Is this correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, and so what you can have is hypospadias with the opening being lower um, along the ventral aspect of the penis. And it's very critical that they would not be circumcised because um, we would use the skin to reconstruct it if indicated. Um, sometimes the foreskin is completely intact, and as you retract the foreskin, the urethral meatus is quite wide. This is called megameatus. Many children in this position end up with a circumcision because the physician may or may not see the abnormality. And these children, it's also important to seek advice before proceeding. Um, so if you do, if you're a physician out there who does circumcisions, it's important to retract the foreskin look at the urethral meatus. If it looks abnormal, then it's always good to call your 
your local pediatric urologist. And what I will typically do is see those kids more urgently to make sure that they would be fit for surgery. Um, the other condition you can see is something called a dorsal hood deformity, um, where there's more skin dorsally than ventrally. And this is what happens with hypospadias, but sometimes you can simply have skin features that are different. And in that case, you also wouldn't want to do a routine circumcision because it may require uh, a little more involved surgery. Ryan, you mentioned that sometimes you need surgical intervention for some conditions. Now, if somebody is having recurrent urinary tract infection and they have a physiological phimosis, for example, is there a way that you can avoid surgery if the, if the person or the parents would rather avoid surgery? What medical interventions can you try first? Absolutely. Um, so if, if someone has, has a normal foreskin or that physiologic phimosis and they're having problems such as recurrent urinary tract infections or they notice inflammation um, or, or an infection of the actual foreskin, there, there are alternatives to, to circumcision, certainly, in, in terms of attempting to get a retractile uh, foreskin, uh, perhaps earlier than the body otherwise wanted because they are having complications. Um, the, the success of, of these types of treatments, which I'll discuss briefly in a second, really depends on how well you can make sure it truly is a, uh, a normal or a physiologic phimosis as opposed to a pathologic phimosis. Um, because these medical interventions have, um, are, are less efficacious and don't work as well in the pathologic phimosis setting. But in an otherwise normal foreskin, uh, medical therapy would involve a, a topical steroid. And there are many preparations. Um, one, one example could be 0.1% betamethasone cream. And what the, you'd instruct the parents and the child to do would be to uh, essentially retract the foreskin as, uh, as best you can to try and uh, get the distal aspect and apply this steroid cream liberally to the distal aspect with some gentle stretching and retraction. And you can do this twice a day for up to six to eight weeks. And this achieves a successful retraction in about up to 70 to 80% of, of children. Um, and hopefully this can, if the foreskin was leading to the recurrent urinary tract infections or their foreskin infection or balanopolistitis, they, they might be able to see some benefit with this by means of a non-surgical intervention. And just to add on, on Ryan's comment, um, you can still use a steroid um, cream or ointment in pathologic phimosis. It's just, as he said, it may not be as successful. And it's very critical that you follow them up to make sure that it's working. So um, they can start with trying that. And if it's not successful, then they may, may need to go on to, uh, to a circumcision. So. What are current recommendations regarding male infant circumcision? The recommendations regarding male infant circumcision um, is definitely a controversial topic. Uh, certainly there's a lot of lack of consensus and strong opposing views when you do look at various uh, recommendations. Um, from a Canadian perspective, I would like to make the readers aware about uh, our Canadian Urologic Association published a nice kind of overview guideline that can be a, a resource that people are interested in reading that can be found at cua.org that really looks at a Canadian perspective. So in, in terms of the, the simple overall answer is that uh, there, there is no strong recommendation for universal neonatal circumcision. Some of the points that are, that are commonly brought up from a medical benefit are um, 
does neonatal circumcision decrease the rate of urinary tract infection? And it appears uh, that this is true. Um, in terms of you look at a recent meta-analysis, urinary tract infection rates could be up to 10 times higher in uncircumcised males. Um, overall, the rates of urinary tract infection in otherwise anatomically normal males is quite low at about 1%, with a circumcision complication modestly being around 1% to 2% as well. There may be a stronger effect in looking at um, reducing urinary tract uh, infections in uh, males that have other urologic abnormalities, such as hydronephrosis or, or reflux. Um, another commonly discussed area is decreasing the rate of transmission of HIV. There is level one evidence to suggest decreased female to male HIV transmission. That does not appear to be true for male to male or male to female. However, a lot of these studies may not have applicability within our Canadian demographics, so it's hard to make sweeping recommendations. Another very um, commonly discussed about topic is um, HPV infection. And while uncircumcised males, it appears that they do have less colonization with uh, HPV. In terms of other public health initiatives, such as uh, vaccination and awareness and behavioral modification, it's hard to to say that circumcision is um, equally as effective and worth worth the uh, worth the benefits. So, if I I can just add in, um, there's some evidence for a, for a minor benefit from a from a health standpoint, which may be important in children who have uh, significant urologic abnormalities. But if you're looking at an overarching opinion, which is often what parents want in the office. Essentially, if you're looking at a surgical procedure in a newborn that has the risks of a surgical procedure, there isn't a strong medical indication in a healthy, normal child to do a routine circumcision. Um, and as Ryan says, there's a lot of controversy and different, different views, but from a, a simple medical standpoint in a normal, healthy child, um, the risk-benefit uh, is not necessarily towards the circumcision. What are the current circumcision rates in Canada and have they changed in recent years? Yes, there appears to be a trend not only in, in Canada, but uh, in other countries decreasing circumcision rates. Rates were about two-thirds of male infants back in the 1970s. And in the uh, 2000s, this has decreased down to approximately 31%, which varies amongst provinces that you know, the highest in Alberta and the lowest in, in Nova Scotia. And discussion around why this might be, but it probably is related to numerous factors, including changing parental beliefs. Um, if you look at uh, some evidence regarding surveys about what factors lead to current circumcision, a survey in the U.S. found an association with those who were born in the U.S. as opposed to elsewhere, had previously circumcised sons, and those who discussed circumcision with the father. In Canada, Kind of a similar survey showed that uh, the status of the father, circumcised or uncircumcised, significantly influenced uh, how the child would be. So it seems that parental views may be driving this interest. That's quite a substantial drop in prevalence of, of infant male circumcision. So this is probably somewhat outside the scope of your article, but I'm curious to know, how often do you see children who have problems post-circumcision? Yes, it's very important to recognize that newborn circumcisions are not without complications. And the most common thing I see is actually concerns about the circumcision. And the majority are cosmetic. Um, 
but I actually did have a resident review um, all of my kids that I saw and interestingly more children needed needed a surgery to fix the circumcision than children just coming to my office asking about an uncircumcised penis. So there, were, there aren't great studies on the complication rates with circumcision, but there's some, some theories, sort of some thoughts that it could be upwards of 12% after circumcision. Um, and so it is important to recognize this and uh, it's important to recognize the contraindications to circumcision. Um, because there are a lot of a lot of parents and a lot of children who are unhappy with the appearance after a circumcision. So I have a follow-up question to that. And and I, I know, you know, in the past, it used to be you'd have a little boy born and they would schedule the circumcision right away um, while the child was still in hospital sometimes. And it would be done in that environment. And perhaps nowadays, uh, when circumcisions are done, in some communities more than in others, and possibly in some religious communities more than others, do you find that that circumcisions are being performed by people who are less qualified to perform them now than it was in the past? I, I think, quite honestly, it's it's always been a problem um, in terms of of people doing circumcisions. Um, even when you look at, uh, there was a study I, I heard a few years ago of. Um, in the in the gynecology world, um, and asking residents who would feel comfortable doing them, and asking them to identify the contraindications to circumcision, and a very low percentage of them could actually recognize contraindications to circumcision. Um, and so I think I think what happens is in the old days, bad things happen. The appearance may not have been appropriate, but we didn't hear about it, and parents didn't report it. What I'm finding over time is is parents are far less accepting of problems, um, and we hear about those problems and we hear about the complications. Um, and I think in particular, it seems interesting that when they have to pay for a procedure, um, they're far quicker to to come back maybe with with um, concerns about it than if they didn't, um, which is a whole other interesting topic. But um, I think I think the same problems happened before. I don't think there's a difference in the levels of training. I think a lot of people are not well trained to do circumcisions. Um, it's rarely urologists who do them. Most of us uh, w- would rather not. So we'll typically do the medically indicated circumcisions. Um, and so I think uh, there's got to be a lot more education about how to do them and what the complications are. Um, what I tend to find is that Parents go into circumcision thinking it's a basic thing, there's no risks, um, and in actual fact, there are significant risks, and it's important to talk to them about the cosmetics and how it's going to look and, and the risks down the road. One of the biggest problems is nice, healthy, chubby babies who have a circumcision and then bury their penis, um, and the parents are horrified afterwards. This often fixes with time, but it's very important to, to talk to the families about this risk before. Um, the other concern I'm seeing now is is obesity in children, and so some physicians will do circumcisions in very obese children, um, and that results in a very bad cosmetic outcome. Um, when really we should be addressing the obesity rather than you know rather than the foreskin. Um, and finally, there are significant risks of death with bleeding, so we have to remember that a newborn circumcision, if you're looking at a little baby with uh, with their blood volume. If you have bleeding after a circumcision, it doesn't take much to to send them into hypovolemia um, and and end end up uh, quite sick from it. So 
It is very important that parents understand that this is a surgical procedure. And I think going into it, what I usually tell parents is, are you comfortable with the risks of a surgical procedure in your newborn? And do you feel strongly enough that, that this is important? And if, if you use a medical approach, it's probably pretty rare that you can, you can say that it would be worth it. Okay. So Darcy, as boys get older, should care of the foreskin change? And should physicians be on the lookout for anything different at this stage? Sure. So I think the critical thing as boys get older is there's a tendency to um, actually speak to them less about their genitalia and taking care of it out of fear for embarrassment. Um, and so I always say how important it is when I'm teaching students or family physicians that genital exam really should be part of a yearly health exam. Um, and it's important to discuss foreskin care as well as testicular self-exam at that time. As boys get older, it's important to talk to them about keeping things clean because as we all know, um, in the teenage years in particular, sometimes lifestyle habits are not stellar. Um, so you really want to establish those healthy routines when they're when they're younger and talk to them about it and make sure that they are retracting when they're when they're voiding to make sure that it's clean and making sure they take care of it. Um, and as Ryan had mentioned earlier about the condition called paraphimosis, it's important as boys learn to retract it, um, that they don't leave it behind the head of the penis and run into problems. So I think the biggest thing is just really talking to them about it and making sure it's part of their routine health visit. Um, and, and physicians really need to, to play an active role in this. They need to normalize it um, and make sure that they're discussing these things with teenagers. And if they do that from a preteen to teenage years um, sort of age group, then the kids will talk to them and they'll tell them if there's problems. The other thing that's important is that as the boys get older, that is when you can see pathologic phimosis and that's scarring of the skin. And that's very important to catch because that can progress and extend down the, down the urethra and become a condition that we call lichen sclerosis, which you'll see in, in boys as well as you can see this condition in women. Um, so it's important to recognize that if they start to see skin changes and scarring of the foreskin as the child is older, that's something to act on and, and uh, consider referring. So another thing to clarify, when you say um, don't leave the foreskin behind the head of the penis, what you're saying is when boys retract it to void, they should uh, bring the foreskin back over the head of the penis to protect the head of the penis? Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything that you would have liked to talk about that we haven't touched on? I, I think um, from my standpoint, I really want to be on a soapbox about genital exam and um, it, the importance for physicians to make that a part of routine care. And interestingly, our, I think our favorite handout in the office is our foreskin care handout from the CUA. So, um, that's the one that has to be refilled more often than any other handout. Um, the other thing I think um, to bring up is I get a lot of referrals on um, concerns about smegma, which is something that Ryan had mentioned earlier. Um, so as, as the skin breaks down, you'll see smegma, and it often looks like a mobile white lump under the skin, and it can be quite extensive. And as the, the smegma makes its way out, sometimes parents and physicians think this is an infection um, when it's not. And so it can be a bit alarming. So I think, again, as part of recognizing normal foreskin and how things look, um, this is another thing they may see that's not worrisome. So just to take that 
a little further. Um, you say people mistake a large piece of smegma for um, an infection. I, I assume they're mistaking it for pus. So usually when there's an infection, there are other features. What are the other features that you would see that you wouldn't see if it was just um, smegma? So if you have a true infection, then you tend to have significant redness of the penis, often extending down the entire shaft. Um, there's quite a bit of swelling, um, edema in the penis. So if you just see a lump and you see white extruding, then it's more likely to be smegma. But if you see a very swollen penis that's red, the skin is hot and they're very sore, then that's more in keeping with infection. The other thing that we'll see that people often think is infection is sometimes whether it's a baby um, in a diaper or a boy who's not retracting and the foreskin is damp, as you can often see it, the tip of the foreskin is reddish. Um, that sometimes is mistaken for infection, but more often it's just irritation due to the dampness. Well, I think this is a really um, important article and uh, informative for parents. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Hello, thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Ryan McClarty, a fourth-year urology resident, and Dr. Darcy Kidu, a pediatric urologist, both at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.